good response. Open your Bibles, if you would. First, Second Corinthians. Ah, I get to the last chapter, and I'm still doing it. Uh, Second Corinthians chapter 13, right? This is, as I said, the final chapter. Um, as I said last week, we have been in, in, the, in the Corinthian letters for like almost a year. And that's a good, healthy investment. Uh, these two letters together uh, constitute about a third of what Paul wrote in the New Testament. And so over the last year, as we've looked at these, these two letters, we have exposed our hearts and our minds to this huge block of teaching where Paul has talked about just about everything. Um, we've talked, Paul's talked about division and factions in the church and the body of Christ and sexual immorality and false teachings and false doctrine and spiritual pride. He's answered questions about marriage, about leadership in the church, about uh, lawsuits between believers, uh, spiritual gifts and exercising spiritual gifts, the whole question of idolatry, both in a formal sense of idolatry and as it might slip into our Christian experience, uh, the matter of the Lord's table, uh, the promise of his return, and that was just 1 Corinthians. And through 2 Corinthians, we visited a lot of those same issues, uh, but mostly the issue of relationship, the relationship between the apostle and the churches uh, in the second letter. And so, and, and when I say relationship, I mean relationship between the apostle and the church, between the church and it, its savior, between members of the church, the whole question. The importance of worldview, we've been talking about that for a few weeks, getting the right worldview, that when we come to Christ, our worldview has to change, getting a right perspective on things. We got just a lot of stuff that we've covered in this letter, all of which is re very real, okay? And now it comes down to the final chapter. And so how does Paul summarize it? How does Paul put an end to that? Um, what does it all boil down to? And so that's really where we're at. So 1 Corinthians, or just again, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in the first verse, Paul writes, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I have previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. Since you're seeking proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who's not weak towards you but mighty in you, for indeed he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, and yet we shall live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. Father, we thank you for the, the breadth of real-life issues, Lord, that we've seen the Apostle Paul just dive right into uh, this last year as we've looked over the Corinthian letters, that Father, it's amazing how though he writes to a church of 2,000 years ago, so many of these things, they speak right to us today. We know that's an evidence of the simple fact that your word is a living word, Father. It speaks to us even today. We want to thank you for that and ask that you'd open our hearts and our minds um, to what you have for us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So when it's all said and done, that's the, this is the bottom line. He says, test yourselves. See if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this simple fact about yourselves? Christ is in you. That's the bottom line. You know, over the, over the last few years, the church has seen a lot of failure, a lot of failed tests. 
We've seen moral failure, financial failure. We've seen doctrinal insanity. Um, spiritual leadership has been tested at all levels and in too many cases has failed. Um, and, and, and truth is that even though we tend to think of failure in terms of church leadership, I think we all know the church is not exactly having a stellar season. The church is weakening in, in many, many ways. Immorality from top to bottom. Apathy is rampant, rampant in the church. Doctrinal confusion is rampant. Um, Knowledge of God's word declining. I know I share this example an awful lot, but when I have a new class of Greek students come in, I teach Greek at the Bible College for our visitors, um, one of the first things I always say to them is, I will know very quickly how much of your Bible in English you know. And it is saddening to see how much, you know, I think I can assume by the time a student gets to a Greek class, there's at least somewhat serious about studying the Bible, and yet how little Biblical knowledge is there. It's, it's, it's saddening, it is, right? Um, the whole question of relevance of the church challenges us today. And at the risk of being overly simplistic, I think all of that, that whole array of problems that we are challenged with today, um, is addressed in this very short and simple text that we looked at. Just in verse 5. The apostle begins with a challenge, and he expresses that challenge to uh, different ways, very closely related, but different. And then he asks a question, a fairly simple question, before he states the severity of the issue, unless you fail. Wow. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the challenge. First of all, Paul says, test yourselves. Now, there's a certain irony in that, if you've been following the Corinthian letters, because you know that all along, from the beginning of 1 Corinthians and even before, the church has been calling Paul into question. Paul's credentials, Paul's authority, the veracity of... The church has been questioning Paul. Now Paul says, we get right down to the grid, you got to check yourselves. Paul says to the church, test yourselves, right? You want to question somebody, start with yourself. It's really good, really good sound advice for all of us, right? The word that he uses, and I know I've talked about this word in the past, uh, the word for test is, is pirazo, pirazo. And it means to test something to determine if it is what it's presented to be, right? It's like when the miner goes into the, the assayer's office and prevents, presents his ore and says it's gold, and the assayer says, well, we'll find out. And they test it to find out. It's like anybody that, that works with, with metals knows that you can, you can test it, you can fire it, and based on the way it responds to heat, well, that describes our lives, doesn't it? You quickly find out you know, what it's made of. You know, my, my introduction to that at a very, very young age was uh, I'd be working with my dad and we, we'd cast pistol bullets, and you had this ingot of, of lead, and it looks like it's pure lead, and you, you put it to the fire and you melt it, and what rises to the top is all the junk that isn't lead. And you go, I had no idea it was that dirty. I had no idea there was that much junk in it. And, you'd, and um, the other thing that's really crazy about that whole process, if you've ever, ever messed around with, with molten lead, you know about this, is when you first melt it, it still looks good, right? But then you drop in a little bit of wax or a product called flux, and it goes poof. And then when the smoke clears, that's when the junk is on top. And boy, isn't that like our lives? You know, we're cruising along just fine. Everything looks good. And then a little pressure comes into our lives or a little difficulty or a child, poof! And we look at our lives and we go, ooh, I didn't know that was there. Well, it was there all along. And just the, the test, the parazo, brought it to the surface. It's, um, 
So Paul, what Paul's saying to these believers is, are you, do you, you present yourselves as followers of Christ, are you? Maybe you should ask that question. That's the first one, test yourself. That's perazo. The second thing, it's really close. He says, examine yourselves. It's in that same verse, examine yourself. And here, here the word is dokimazo, and I know I've talked about this word before. Dokimazo is a little different. It means test, like perazo or, or, or evaluate. But does it, the difference is, is there. The first one, you're testing it to see if it is what it's presented to be. The second one, dokimazo, means to check it to see if it's acceptable. Even if it is what it's presented to be, it might, it might not be acceptable. Um, one way words often translated is to taste, and that's a, that's a pretty good example. You know, somebody may bring you something they've made, they've baked or they've cooked, and they want you to try this, and you can look at it, um, and they say it's a, it's a pie, and they bring you a piece of pie, and you go, oh, yeah, it looks like pie. I can certainly tell by looking at it that it's pie, but after one taste, I, you don't want it, right? <laughs> Sorry. It may, be, it may be what you say it is, but it's not good, right? So these, these two words, that kind of work together in a somewhat interesting way. So you apply the, these two ideas to Christians, right? Uh, you can, I, it's so much easier talking about things, talking about somebody else, right? It's always easy to talk about somebody else. We, we all know Christians are people who present themselves as believers, followers of, of Christ, but after you're around them for a while, you go, I don't know, right? Based on you know, their, their actions or based on their inaction or based on just their very nature of their being, you start to go, oh, I don't want to be judgmental, but I'm not sure, right? There are Christians like that, right? Or there are people that we know, Christians, who, sure enough, that you, you're around them, and yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that they're a follower of Christ, and they're a believer, and they're saved. I just hope they, they do their being saved over there, right? Because, frankly, they're just not very nice. I don't want to be around them, right? We know people like that. Well, of course, the more relevant question is ourselves, right? Applying that to ourselves, right? First, I ask myself, am I what I claim to be? Am I really a follower of Christ? Right? Am I mathetes, follower, disciple of Christ? Now, the minute we ask that, I know there are some extremes people tend to go to. Um, some people are constantly questioning, you know, am I really a Christian or not? Am I really a follower or not? Um, that's that's, that's a, um, uh, an extreme to avoid. You know, when, when people come to me and they say, you know, I'm just really not sure if I'm saved or not, I, I say, well, look at the trajectory of your life, right? Because we know that none of us are there yet. None of us are perfect. We've all got stuff we're working on, but that's the key. Are we working on it? You know, if I, if I look at the trajectory of my life, and I can say over the past many years, I'm more like Jesus now than I was then, which actually, you know, there was plenty of room for improvement, so it shouldn't be that hard to see it if it's there, right? If I see the trajectory of my life moving into his likeness, that's the evidence that I need. If I look back over the many years and I don't see any change, then I have a serious problem, right? So that's one, one extreme you want to avoid, you know, this constantly questioning and constantly evaluating. Consider the trajectory of your life. The other extreme is people that say, yeah, well, you know, I gave my heart to the Lord 20 years ago, and that's good. But nothing's ever changed. Well, that's not good either. The way we check ourselves, the way we pirazo ourselves, is to look at that trajectory of our life. Do we see his character being fashioned 
in ourselves. And it should be visible. It should be visible. And then the second way we test ourselves is this dokimazo question. Um, am I the kind of Christian who people want to be around? Am I the kind of person whose faith draws people to Christ, draws people to the church? Um, and I say that recognizing that not everybody's a people person, right? Not everybody has a naturally magnetic personality, right? I don't see myself as having a naturally magnetic personality, right? We'll often be with a group of people, and um, my loving wife will say, you know, you really didn't make that person feel real comfortable, right? You were kind of, well, off-putting, right? It's who I am. You know what that means? That means I've got to work on it. That doesn't give me a free pass. Well, I'm sorry I am the way I am, and if they don't like no, 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 no. I need to work on it. And how do I work on it? I work on it by drawing nearer to the person of Christ and asking him, you know, you can pray for yourself. It's okay. You can do that. Lord, help me in my presentation of myself. I don't mean to put people off. Sometimes I get told I'm off. Lord, help me in this because I really don't want to be the kind of believer that pushes people away. I want them to be drawn to you. So Paul raises this issue of testing ourselves to see whether or not we are genuine in our following of Christ, to see whether or not we're the kind of Christian that draws people. And the key, the key to both of those questions, what makes them so central is this third element, which is actually the real question of the text. He says, do you recognize this about yourselves? This is something they should already know. This is not new information. right? You should be able to see this in your behavior, he assumes it to be true. He assumes it to be knowable. He assumes it to be recognizable. You should already have a consciousness of this, that the presence of Christ in my life is there in such a way I can say, I know Christ is in me. Christ in me. Christ in you. The presence of Christ in my life should be recognizable. There should be a conviction of sin in my heart. There should be a desire for righteousness in my heart. There should be a compassion in my heart. Even if you don't express it that well, some of us struggle to express that, it should be there. There should be a certain sense of anger against evil. There should be a desire to see others come to faith, walk with Christ. That character that Jesus manifested, that drew people to him, right? We should recognize that Christ is in us. Do we see the extraordinary nature of that statement? Christ in you. That may be the single most radical statement in the New Testament. And there's a lot of radical stuff in the New Testament. We've got God taking on human flesh in all of his weakness and all of his limitations and all of its pains and so we've got God digging on human flesh for the very purpose of dying for humans who have rejected him. For the purpose of being raised from the dead so he can lift humanity with him. I mean, that's pretty radical. But I believe this is even more radical. Because now we have that same God coming to dwell in those very people whom he has lifted through his resurrection. And that's what we're talking about the next two weeks as we talk about the day of Pentecost. But the central truth for us to understand is Christ is in us. Again, maybe the most radical affirmation in Scripture, Christ dwelling in his people. Because what that makes 
is an affirmation that no other, quote, religion can make. If you happen to notice the title of the message on the whiteboard, and you know I never talk about titles, don't like titles, I hate to even spend time on them, but this one I couldn't get away from. The title of this message is Why I Hate Religion. And it's not because I'm one of those like, uh, you know, I'm not a religious person, that, that kind of emotive. No, I'll tell you why I hate religion. Because it hides what Christianity is. The, the moment you say Christianity is a religion, you have completely misrepresented our faith. Now, that's not to say you can't take the precepts of Christianity and make a religion out of it. You can do that. A lot of people do. But in and of itself, to say that Christianity is a religion is nothing short of heresy. You know what the word religion means? It comes from an old Latin word that means to bind. The word means to bind. And it first appeared in church um, vocabulary and church lingo in about the 14th century talking about the strict rules and guidelines and structure that the monastic lifestyle imposed on the monks. They were, quote, bound. Well, my whole understanding of Christianity is just the opposite. It frees. It is a freeing reality based on not rules and regulations, but a personal experience and a personal relationship. Now, yeah, there are things we do and don't do as Christians. It's not a free-for-all. There are, for lack of better words, if you'll allow me, guidelines that we follow. But those guidelines, those rules, they don't begin to define our faith. And if you try to define our faith that way, you lose our faith. They are mutually exclusive. Our faith is defined by one thing and only one thing. Does Christ dwell in me? Does Christ dwell in you? That is the defining truth of the gospel. Christ dwelling in his people. Consider how radical and how distinct that is from any other faith. Because if any other spirit, then the spirit of Christ dwells in a person. How do we define that person? demon-possessed. Any other spirit but the spirit of Christ dwells in a person, they are, by definition, demon-possessed. The only spirit I will welcome into my heart is that of Christ himself. That's what it is to be a Christian. And that should be recognizable. The Christian faith, or the Christian walk, is in its essence an incredibly intimate relationship that finds expression in action. I'm a fallen creature. I have a sin nature. I can justify all kinds of nonsense, so I need guidelines, parameters, and rules, but they're just there to remind me the rules, if you will, of what it is to be a Christian, the things we don't do or the things we do do. They're just there to remind me that certain behaviors are not consistent with an existing relationship I have with my Savior. Everything, every, every rule or guideline in the Christian faith is there simply to remind me of what is or what is not consistent with the presence of Christ dwelling inside of me. There is only one thing that makes me a Christian. There is one thing that makes me a disciple, a follower of Christ, and that is Christ in me. What Paul's telling the Ephesian church is, you get that right. 
You get that single concept right, that Christ dwells in you both individually and corporately as a church. And you know what's going to happen to all those problems you've been dealing with? Over time, they will resolve themselves. That is my firm belief, that we get this issue of Christ dwelling in us as the centerpiece of our faith, and we begin to act that truth out. And with the instruction of his word, act that word out with consistency and integrity, and all those other issues begin to resolve themselves. He will bring them to our attention where they need to be corrected. Things that we have neglected to do, he will bring to our attention and with the correction because he dwells within us by his spirit. Right? Colossians is a great letter. It's kind of the opposite of Corinthians. Because Corinthians had all these problems, and Paul had to address all these problems and address them by pointing them to the truth. Colossians is like the opposite. It's like a church that really didn't have significant problems, so Paul got to really hone in on the really big truths. It's a marvelous, marvelous letter. And in the very first chapter of Colossians, Paul writes this, and he's talking about the mystery that is the church. A lot of us have questions about exactly what is the church. It's a mystery, right? Paul hones in on this mystery of the church in Colossians chapter 1. He says this, The mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations. The most devout saint of the Old Testament, with the possible exception of David, and I'm not even sure David understood it when he wrote it, is, was, was external. The Spirit of God was external. right? God would come upon them like he did Samson, but then he'd leave. External. It wasn't, there wasn't an abiding internal relationship. This mystery, which was hidden from past ages and generations, has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this ministry among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The only hope I have, the only hope I have for eternity is not a doctrinal truth, it's the presence of Christ in my life. His dwelling, abiding presence. No other religion can offer that, only rules. No other faith or system of religion can offer God in you. Religion only offers regulations, and all it offers is regulations, rules, right? Meditation might change your state of mind, but it can never change your heart. And that's as far as it goes. The only eternal hope or lasting peace is found in the abiding presence of Christ. The Christian faith, the gospel, presents God as coming to dwell among us. Yes, dying to pay the price for our fallenness, resurrected to life that I might have hope, promising to return for me, but God forbid that I stop there. God forbid that I stop there. He has, by his Spirit, I'm, I can't wrap my brain around it. There is no way on earth I can begin to understand an eternal God whom the cosmos cannot contain, who time cannot define, who can only be described as absolute holiness coming to dwell in me. Sorry, can't explain it, but I can believe it. I can't accept it because his word tells me it's true that he has by his spirit come to dwell within me. He has by his spirit come to dwell within his church. So we're going to be looking at that in the next two weeks as we look at the day of Pentecost, but before we even get to that, we've got to finish this. 
Paul challenges the Corinthian church, do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Here's the really good news. You don't want to fail the test? you got to have Jesus dwelling in you. How does that happen? You ask. Isn't incredible? All you have to do is ask. All you have to do is ask. Even, even if, if, it's, if it suddenly dawns on you, I have been walking in rules and regulations thinking that was my faith, thinking that was my hope, and I just realized I have wasted a lot of time and energy in that. What I really need is Christ in me. All you have to do is ask. That's all he waits on. Lord, come and abide in me. There is no other test. There is no other question to ask. The question is not, have I prayed enough? Has I, have I given enough? Have I repented sufficiently? Those are issues to be dealt with, all of them, but they're not the core issue. There is only one central question. Well, actually, there's two. There's two, two questions. One, does he indeed dwell within me? And then secondly, if I answer yes to that question, that yes, indeed, he, he dwells within me, is what kind of a host am I being? Am I living my life in such a way that he's glad he lives in me? Father, we thank you for your word, Lord, as we have walked through these marvelous and challenging letters, Lord. We've invested a lot of time, Father, as a body in these Corinthian letters, and we come to this simple question, Lord. Does Christ dwell in us? Does he dwell in us individually? Does he dwell in us corporately, Lord? Which is to say, is he manifesting? Father, is your son manifesting who he is in and through us. Father, I pray if there's one here this morning who can't answer at least that very first question affirmatively, yep, he dwells within me. I know that because I see the evidence of his goodness being manifested in the, in the course of my life, Lord. If there's one that can't say yes to that, I pray, Father, that that person would say yes this morning, that they'd offer that invitation to your son to come and dwell within them. Father, for those that, that do know you, Father, those who, we, we have you dwelling within us. We're confident, Father. We've seen the arc of our lives to know that the Spirit of God has manifested the character of Christ in our lives, Father. I pray, Lord, that you would help us so walk in such a way that your presence in us can be seen by others and be seen in a way that draws them to you, Lord. For, Father, that is why we are here. Father, you've called us to yourself to spend eternity with you. You've left us here on this earth, Father, to draw others to you. Help us to live our lives this week, Father. As we meditate these questions, Lord, live our lives in such a way that others are drawn to you. Father, that's not of ourselves. That's only of you. But, Father, we know that's your desire for us. We praise this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.